Father, you are so good. And you alone are the holy God. There is no other. There is none equal. And you are worthy of all the praise, worship, and thanksgiving that we can offer you. I pray, Father, as we dive in and finish up 1 Samuel tonight, that you would bless us, speak to us, guide us, help us, Lord, just to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we explored David sparing Saul's life, and then how David, through a lack of faith and making a speedy and emotional decision, descended into horrible sin. We talked about murder. We talked about thieving. We talked about lying, all of which are wrong. In the next chapter, Saul went to visit a medium. And the medium told him that he and his sons would die in battle the next day. Well, technically Samuel told him through the medium. The medium. And chapter 31 will be the next day. So really what happens in chapter 29 and chapter 30 is we go back a few days. Because Samuel visiting the medium was the night before he dies in 31. And there's a good four or five days in chapter 29 and 30. So we kind of take a step back a few days and then we'll catch back up to where we were at at the end of chapter 28 and we'll get to chapter 31. Chapter 29, verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together with all their armies at Aphek. And the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in re review at the rear with Achish. So you remember, I guess I should have brought that up. He was living in the land of the Philistines. He had gotten a city from King Achish, who was one of the five Philistine lords. He uh, was murdering and, and thieving from surrounding nations. And then he would lie to Achish, telling Achish that he was actually murdering and thieving from the um, Israelites. Uh, so you're going to see how that plays out, because Achish was pretty well convinced that it was true. So then the princes of the Philistines said, verse 3, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands? And Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as the Lord lives, and if your Bible is anything like mine, Achish is actually saying, as Jehovah or Yahweh lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me. David was a really good liar. David had not been upright in his going out and coming in. I'm going to have a visitor. Um, and so... Sorry, I lost my... I was distracted by a cute little girl. Why are you sorry? She's a lot cuter than all the rest of you. Isn't she? 
No offense. And she's, she's, she's so adorable. Um, and so he says, as Jehovah lives, you've been upright, you're going out, you're coming in with me. In the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you. Since the day of your coming to me, nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. You've got to, just for a moment, this isn't in my notes, but it just kind of popped into my head. Um, you've got to appreciate Achish's moral compass. He knew, right? Now, he thought he was doing this against Judah. But whatever the case, he knew David was murdering people. He knew David was stealing from people. He didn't know David was lying about who he was doing that to. But he knew David was murdering people, and he knew David was lying to people. And he says, I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Achish's moral compass was broken. Nevertheless, the Lord should not favor you. Verse 7, Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you, that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up to battle with us. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning and to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel, which, you know, back in verse 1, that's where the uh, Israelites were camped. So in this chapter, David presents himself very simply as a servant of Achish. And the Philistine lords say, uh-uh, he is not going out to battle with us. Their fear was that he would be loyal to Saul and would turn on them in battle. And they point out, what better way would there be for him to be reconciled to his master than with the heads of our men? So uh, no matter what, Achish assured them of David's loyalty. They wouldn't listen. Uh, they noted the song that was sung of David and his military conquests. But as I mentioned, we see Achish is convinced that David is upright and as the angel of God. And David defends himself, saying that Achish had found nothing wrong. But Achish tells him to leave, and he does. Now, here's the question. Why did David want to go to war with the Philistines? And there's really two possibilities, I think. Possibility number one. There are some who believe David had fallen so far that he actually intended to fight against Israel. If this is the case, David could sink no lower. However, all this time, he had been lying to Achish. And so I propose a second possibility. I do not believe that David would have fought against Jonathan. He wouldn't kill Saul in the camp. I don't believe David would have fought against Saul. I don't believe he would have fought against any of the Israelites. I personally believe, and this is my opinion, that the Philistine lords were right and that David intended to turn on them in battle. Right? What a great idea. He was all the way in the back. They wait till they go into battle. The Philistine army is engaged with the Israelites in front, and he starts lopping off heads in the back. Right? It was a pretty good plan. Um, so I don't have proof of that. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, and even though we know David has gone pretty far down the wrong path, I just don't believe that he would have killed Israel. I don't believe he would have killed his brothers. 
Whatever the case, we're going to see David return to trusting in the Lord in the next chapter, something that he hasn't done for a year and a half, give or take. Chapter 30, verse 1. Then the Philistines, oh, that's the wrong chapter. Now it happened, <laughs> wow, now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. Uh, I'll just point out, third day, great Christian rock band before they stopped. Um, but uh, there are no coincidences in scripture. We talked about that on Sunday with Mary and Joseph finding Jesus in the temple after three days of looking for him. I don't believe that there are any coincidences in the Bible. So the fact that the third day is mentioned here in what we're going to see in a way is David as he returns to the Lord. It's almost a resurrection of his spiritual life because he was not doing well a couple chapters ago. So you can hang on to that or you can toss it away, whatever you'd like. Um, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So three days, they get back to Ziklag, find out the Amalekites had come up, and why wouldn't they? David had been plundering and murdering Amalekites. You don't think someone goes, hey, that David guy, he's not home. Let's go steal his stuff. Right? Seems like a pretty fair revenge. And in addition, uh, it says they invaded the south, so it wasn't just Ziklag. They hit a bunch of other cities too, because all the Philistines, for the most part, at least all their military force, had gone out to war against the Israelites. So they get back, it's burned. They take everything, including the people, um, with David, along with the husband, and the husband, sorry, the wives and the children of his 600 men. The men wept, this word here, they wept till they had no power. They literally wept to the point of exhaustion. And then they spoke of killing David because of their great grief. We do have to remember when David first ran from Saul, the people that gathered themselves to Saul, right? They were the people who were in debt. They were the people who were disgruntled. They were the people who, um, uh, the Bible sometimes uses the word worthless. They were worthless men. Now, they weren't worthless to David, but they're pretty quick to turn on him, Right? Now, we've talked about this before, that Amalek is a type of the flesh. And this is what happens when we don't deal with our flesh and we let it prevail. Saul failed to deal with the Amalekites, and they continue to be a problem. This becomes a picture for David, who had been acting in his flesh and not seeking and trusting the Lord. But here, we see him returning to that place. Galatians 5.24 reminds us, 
that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we get to 2 Samuel, we will see that an, Am uh, an Amalekite actually kills Saul. Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites. He failed to do it, and that's how he ends up dying. So David, this, this phrase here at the end of verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord. In the last few chapters, as we've seen David backslidden, he removed himself from the will of God, he wasn't seeking God, but here he comes back. And this word in Hebrew, um, forgive my Hebrew pronunciation because it's not very good, is C-H-A-Z-A-Q, um, Kazak. Right? You really got to, if you're going to do it right, you got to put it in the back of your throat. Kazak. But, <clears throat> and it can mean to strengthen or gain courage. But it literally means to seize or fasten onto and to be obstinate or stubborn. I like this word. It describes me. In other words, when David strengthened himself in the Lord, he fastened himself to the Lord. He was obstinate to not look at anything else but to keep his focus on the Lord. This is a 180-degree flip. He, was, he, was, he ran. He ran from the will of God. He ran from uh, uh, the word of God to him about becoming king. He committed horrible crimes. And here, when things get really bad, he comes back. Now, I'm going to throw this out there because I think this is something we often experience as followers of Christ. We get the idea that we're going to do it on our own. And then when everything goes really badly, then we seek the Lord. Anybody? Anybody else? Um, think of all the trouble we would save ourselves if we would seek him first. And when he says no, we would listen. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. What wonderful advice. Matthew 6, 31 through 34, it says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So here's a good question. Bless you. How do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? Well, and the answer is pretty simple. Um, it's what we call spiritual discipline. We need to be in the Word. You want to be obstinate and stubborn and fasten yourself to God? Read His Word. Pray, be in fellowship, fast, spend time alone with God through a practice like silence and solitude. Worship him, seek to rest in him, right? Easy. Easier said than done. We know these things. Um, but ultimately, he is the source of our strength. And through his all-sufficient grace, According to 2 Corinthians 12, we must find our strength in him. 
So I came up with this little line that I kind of like. If, it, if you don't like it, I stole it from someone else. But if it's good, I wrote it. We either find our strength in him or we will fall in our weakness. We either find our strength in him or we will fall in our weakness. Verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, to Himelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, probably through Abiathar, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him. Isn't that awesome? David hasn't wanted to speak to the Lord or hear from the Lord in a year and a half. And when he comes back, Lord, I'm in trouble. God doesn't go, well, deal with it yourself, you stubborn little kid. Lord, what do I do? And the Lord answered him. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. What a promise. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind, where those stayed who, where those stayed who were left behind. I can read. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook, the brook Bezor. And he found an Egyptian in the field. Oh, sorry, I should stop for a second. So David inquires of the Lord. If he had done this to begin with, he wouldn't have been in this problem, uh, as we spoke about a moment ago. Uh, so they set out to pursue the Amalekites with God's assurance that not only will they catch up, they're going to recover everything. However, part of the way into the journey by this brook, 200 of the guys are like, David, we, we're done. We're exhausted. We can't go on. And he says, all right, you stay here and the rest go on, this will come back later. Verse 11. Uh, then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. Who doesn't feel better after a piece of cake? Uh, so when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind, because three days ago I fell sick. Now I'm going to stop for a real quick second. We talked about three days a little bit earlier, didn't we? So, real, reality, when David departed to go back to Ziklag, it was three days earlier. Three days earlier, the Egyptian fell sick and got left behind. I just like thinking about this stuff. So we made an invasion, verse 14, of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines, and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. So you got to think about this. you got 400 guys. We do not know how many Amalekites there were. My guess, more than 400. Probably quite a bit more than 400. Thousands. And David spends 24 hours killing them. Well, him and his 400 guys, or 399 guys. I have 
I've stayed awake for 24 hours before I was tired. This is after three days of journeying, no sleep before they took out after them. And when they caught them, they spent the twilight of one day, so right around the time the sun was going down, until evening of the next day. So somewhere around 24 hours. Now, in Jewish culture, evening really could start somewhere around 3 or 4 o'clock, just depending on the time of year. Um, but still, this was a long battle. I can only surmise that uh, the Lord strengthened them. So David, oh sorry, so David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. David took all the flocks and herds that they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. I love this. So they find an Egyptian slave. Chances are, since the Amalekites bought slaves from Egypt, that they were going to sell the wives and the children and whatnot that they had kidnapped as slaves to Egypt. But they find this guy. He got sick, and his, ma and his ma master said, well, fine, you can just stay here and die. Nice guy. But they feed him. He feels better. They say, will you take us down? He says, sure, as long as you promise not to kill me or give me back. Fine, David says. So they find the enemy eating and drinking in celebration of the spoil they took, David and his men destroyed just about everybody, right? 400 guys ran away on camels, cowards. Uh, but they recover everything, just as the Lord had promised. Now, talks about this is David's spoil there in verse 20. Uh, David's spoil, probably the livestock that they had with them, the Amalekites had with them, that they had taken from the Philistines and from the southern areas of Judah that they attacked, right? Because they attacked Ziklag and took all of David and his men's stuff, but they also attacked, as you remember, the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and the southern area of Caleb. So they had stolen a bunch of livestock from those folks too. And David took it all and he goes, guys, this is mine. Nobody argued with him apparently. Verse 21. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary, and they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. So not only... Did they not want to give them the spoil except for their families? Basically, what they were saying is when they get them back, they can leave. We don't want them here anymore. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as a part, but as his part, is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Well, to the time of the writing, right? Not to this day. The worthless men. I love that description. 
with David. They don't want to return the spoil. And David says, nope, we're not going to do that. Those who stay with the spies share alike with those who go to battle. Now, I think this applies to us. And I think it applies to us in the area of missions. So let me tell you why. Not everyone is called to go to the mission field. Right? There are people. Right? We, we, we support missionaries in Peru and in Africa and in Colorado Springs. And, uh, right? and, and uh, my wife and I and our, well, our family, we support missionaries in India. And we support, right, right? I can't even go to India and be a missionary because they're throwing them all out. You know, it's, it's crazy, but that's just the truth. And so not everybody goes to the mission field. So what do those of us who stay back do? We support them. And the reality then is that we will share in their reward. Jesus told us this in Matthew 10, 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. I love the economics of God's kingdom. First shall be last, last shall be first. If you want to be great, be servant of all. You can't go, I understand. Share with those who go, and you'll share in their reward. Sweet. I love it. Verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in, I hate this word, Aror, Arunur, those who are in Sifmoth, those who are in Eshtemoa, those who are in Rachel, which, by the way, is Bethlehem, um, those who are in the cities of the, those people, uh, the Jerahimelites. <laughs> I, I tell you, when you go to Bible college, they need to have a class in, pronounce, in pronouncing Old Testament names. I'm just saying. You just... You just get the list and you go through them one at a time. Learn how. Yeah, six-month course. <laughs> those who are in the city of the Kenites, those who are in Ormah, those who are in Korishan, those who are in Athok, maybe, as well as Hebron and the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to row. So I find this interesting. So remember, the Amalekites had attacked the south of Judah. So I'm sure... Some of this included giving stuff back that had been stolen from those in the south. But it also included David giving a present as a reward to those who let him roam in their lands. Essentially, these were people who knew David was in their backyard, and they didn't tell Saul. And David appreciated that, so he took all that spoil, but not for himself. He gave it away. Chapter 31, one of the saddest chapters in the Old Testament. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled. Remember, when the Philistine host came up, Saul was really afraid. 
And he tried to seek the Lord, and the Lord wouldn't answer him. That's what sent him to the medium, is because he was scared to death at the size of the Philistine force. But Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. The Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come thrust me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer would not. Wise decision. For he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, you know, I'm kind of happy that Saul is dead. At this point, I'm so tired of all the S's that show up in every verse that Saul is in. Sorry. Um, when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. The Philistines attack. The Israelites run. Saul gets hit by an archer. All of his sons die first. I don't wonder if Saul was not aware that his sons were dead before his death. kind of hope he wasn't, but he might have been. I think it's really sad to see Jonathan's death. He did not deserve this. He did not deserve this. He remained loyal to his father, even though his father, father was a bag of cats. And he didn't deserve this. The Philistines, at this point, Mount Gilboa is actually really close to the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at a map of Israel, from where the Philistines usually were and how far that came to the Sea of Galilee, they came pretty far into the land of Israel. Saul doesn't want to be tortured. You know, when he says, uh, thrust me through, I don't want these uncircumcised men to kill me and abuse me. Uh, that word abuse literally means to be tortured. He's like, you know what they're going to do? If I'm not dead when they get here, do you know what they're going to do to me? So just kill me. Armor bearer says, uh-uh. I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm just no. So Saul sets up the sword in front of him and he falls on it. Can't, um, that's got to be a horrible way to kill yourself. Now, when we get to chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, and, and we're not going to get really too far into that, but you're welcome to read ahead. Um, this didn't work. Saul didn't die. Not yet. Because in chapter 1, an Amalekite comes upon him, and he finds him, and Saul was leaning on his spear, and Saul called to him, and he said, Who are you? And he said, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains. That's in verse 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. So, just crazy, right? He'd been hit by arrows, not dead. Falls on his own sword or spear, not dead. Sitting there, suffering, and the Malachite comes by and he's like, dude, can you just put me out of my misery? Um, that doesn't go well for the Amalekite. Verse 7 when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day that when the Philistines came to strip the slain, right, they came to, to take the spoil of war, 
that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So between verse 7 and 8, what we'll read about in 2 Samuel chapter 1 takes place. Somewhere in between there. Um, so they saw him fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabeth-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabeth and burned them there. And they took the bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabeth and fasted seven days. So here's what happened. He tries to commit suicide. It doesn't work. Uh, somewhere between verse 7 and 8, what we read about in chapter 1 of the next book. Well, because you've got to remember, First and Second Samuel weren't separate books when they were originally written. They were one book. Actually, for, I think, what did we, we, we discussed it. Uh, it was first, I think it was First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were all one book. If I remember correctly. Don't quote me on that. Um, but the Philistines, they take the cities. Uh, they treat Saul shamefully. Cut off his head, strip him naked, and hang him on a wall. Then they send his armor to the temple of their idol, praising their false god. Right? Did their false god do anything? No. This was what God said would happen to him coming true. Um, now, valiant men from Jabeth Gilead. I like these guys. I like these guys. They hear about what happens. They travel all night long. They go to this Philistine city, right? We don't know how many men there were. There certainly weren't as many as were in the Philistine city. I guarantee it. They go to the, get them, they burn their bodies, they bury the bones in order to honor them in some way. Then they fast for seven days. Now, you can remind me of this, because as we get into 2 Samuel, when David is king and he finds out about this, he rewards them. Now, I'm going to bring up a quick thing that I find interesting, and I've actually had this discussion with several pastor friends of mine in the past. Um, but essentially, what the guys from Jabeth Gilead did was cremate Saul in a sense. Now, I know there are some Christians who are vehemently opposed to cremation. Um, however, all cremation does is speed up the process. And uh, I stole this, this next line from Pastor Chuck. Whether it takes 40 years in the ground or 40 minutes in the fire, it's all the same. Because if you're buried, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but first off, they've already taken everything out, your organs, your fluids, it's all gone. And they preserve you the best they can, but over time, your flesh, it, it goes away, right? It doesn't stay there. You dig up somebody after a good period of time, all you find is their skeleton anyway. This is actually a practice in Israel. Have you ever heard of an ossuary or a bone box? Uh, quite a few years ago, 15, 20 years ago, they actually found a bone box that had the name James on it, uh, and it was believed to have been uh, the, the Apostle James, uh, the writer of the book of James, Jesus' half-brother. No way to prove it, but it'd be cool if it was. Um, I'm sure there was more than one guy named James. <laughs> but this is what they would do. You would bury someone in a tomb, 
you would wait a couple years, and once there was nothing left by their skeleton, you would go in and get the bones, and you would put them in a bone box, which was much smaller than the tomb, and then you could bury someone else in the tomb. It was a practice back then. So I, I have no problem with cremation. It's in our will. We're, we're to be cremated. I, I don't want my kids to spend five, ten thousand dollars on a funeral. I, I just, why? Um, because here's the reality. We are not our bodies. Flesh and blood is temporary. It was always, well, originally it wasn't meant to be temporary. Adam messed that up for us. But um, they're temporary now. And what we are, we are a spirit. Which is really interesting. We are not a body that has a spirit. This is a C.S. Lewis quote. We are a spirit that has a body. It's very different. Because we don't usually think of it that way. But that's the truth. When we die, what does our spirit do? It moves. Right? If we die before the rapture, our spirit simply exchanges this body for the new one. If we die, not die, but if we are here when the rapture occurs, can you please? If we're here when the rapture occurs, according to 1 Corinthians, we simply change. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this goes away, and we're in our new bodies. Like that. Oh, I so want that to happen. So what happens to this body after we die doesn't really matter. It just doesn't. All right, let's close. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Why do I bring this up? Because Saul found this out the hard way. His disobedience to God, his madness, his hatred for David. I mean, remember, he murdered 70 priests. He, he, he was not a nice guy after he went crazy. Started off well, but then, um, you know, he went cuckoo, bananas. And all of the murderous and horrible things he did came back on him. He suffered for it. Not only did he suffer for it, but his sons did as well. And so I throw this out there. The principle of sowing and reaping still exists to this day. Now, I'm not telling you if you do something stupid um, that you'll lose your salvation. That's not how that works. But if you do something stupid, if I do something stupid, there will be consequences. Always. That's how it works. So here, Saul's reign has come to an end. Uh, next week, Maybe next week. I think I might do something different next week. It'll be a surprise. But when we start 2 Samuel, we will see David mourn Saul. And if we get that far, uh, we'll see David become the king of Judah. Because he's actually king in Judah for about uh, seven and a half years before he becomes king of all Israel. Um, but we'll figure all that and find all that out when we get to 2 Samuel. Until then, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom. It is so easy to make poor decisions and then be out of sorts about the consequences for them. I just pray, God, that you would help us strengthen ourselves in you. Help us to seek you, your wisdom, your guidance, so that we don't make those mistakes. 
so that we can own you and not have to suffer the consequences. I thank you, Father, that you, you leave that open to us, that you give us that opportunity. And I pray that we would take advantage of that. Father, be with us the rest of our week. May you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.